Well, we're continuing our series, Church Matters. And in it, we're looking at the purposes of the church and why we need the church. We've been considering the New Testament church and looking at Acts 2, 42 through 47 as the springboard for this series. If you haven't heard the other sermons in this series, I definitely recommend taking the time to go and listen. You can access all of the sermons on the webpage, on your favorite podcast provider, or through the on-demand channel on the live stream link. So far, we've talked about our need for community, our need for discipleship, spiritual growth, and this week we're going to be looking at our need for worship. What exactly is worship? Why does worship matter? Why do we gather together weekly and sing and hear a sermon? Now, before we dive in, let me first say that I have probably about half a dozen sermons on various aspects of worship that I could teach. I'd love to talk about the biblical foundations on, uh, for musical diversity in worship. I'd love to talk about the Psalms and the need for emotionally honest worship. Obviously, we don't have time for six sermons right now, so just know that I'm not going to be able to cover everything that I might like to on this topic. Now, if I were to ask each of you individually to define worship, I would end up in all likelihood with a list of definitions that would vary. And in some cases, they would vary dramatically. If I were to ask you to define worship pre-pandemic, you might answer differently than you would now. Similarly, you may have had a different answer just one year ago or even five years ago. You see, many too quickly limit the definition of worship, not only just to our weekly gatherings together, but even more specifically to the style of music that we're singing. It's important to realize that worship cannot be limited to a specific definition because nowhere in the Bible is the word strictly defined. The word worship that we have is an, ad, is an inadequate translation of the Greek and Hebrew terms. Our word is, de- is derived from the Old English word, worth-ship, meaning worthiness, or to ascribe worth or merit. So in the case of Christian worship, the assumption then is giving God the recognition he deserves. So at its simplest, worship is ascribing worth. But there are problems with this English translation because the Greek and Hebrew terms do not mean precisely the same thing. In some instances, it's referring to reverent speech. In other occasions, it's referring to sacrificial acts. Other times, it's referring to the physical act of bowing down. And so it makes sense that there can be confusion about what worship actually means because we use one word that can be interpreted to mean a variety of things. As God's redemptive plan unfolds, the way in which people worship transforms. Therefore, we shouldn't be questioning what appropriate worship music sounds like, but how to think more about worship holistically. What is worship? How do we worship? What makes our worship glorifying to God? We must first understand that worship is not about us. Throughout salvation history, God provides the means in which humanity may interact with him. God always establishes the means of worship, and God should be the object of our worship at all times. Too often, the church loses sight of the centrality of God in worship, and the discussion turns to matters of personal stylistic preferences. So before, that we, before we can contextualize what biblically faithful worship entails, 
we must first shift our focus to the biblical foundations of worship. As we examine these questions, I'm going to first give a theological overview of the course of worship throughout the Bible, focusing on how God establishes it in the biblical narrative. From worship at its purest in the Garden of Eden, through its transformation as a result of sin, to our return to pure worship in eternity. Once the theme of worship is examined from the biblical context, we'll then begin to take a look at the practical approach in contextualizing a practical theology when we begin to think about worship as a church community. So worship as it unfolds in salvation history, starting with the Old Testament. In the beginning, there was worship. The foundation of worship begins alongside the beginning of humanity during the creation account described in Genesis 1. Japanese theologian Yoshiaki Hattori suggests the cornerstone of all theological concepts must begin with the relationship between God, the creator, and his created humans. Hattori notes that as human beings, it is our responsibility to keep a right relationship with God and we are to pay service to our creator. The concept of paying service to God immediately suggests that worship must be active and as well suggests that worship is a response to some other action or being. However, it's important to note that because God created the earth and created humanity, that it is God that initiates the interaction between God and man. With this in mind, Hattori argues, if worship embraces the basic attitude of human response to creator God, the original beauty of the responding relationship in that act of worship can be seen even before the fall. Thus, at creation, worship in its purest form was a human response to the divine provision initiated by God. Well, shortly after the creation count, account, humans broke the relationship with God through their disobedience of God's sole command. Through the eating of the forbidden fruit, humans began a pattern of responding to their own desires rather than responding to God's provision, disconnecting the human race from, relationship with, uh, from the relationship with God that God intended to have with the people that he created in his own image. Because of their fall from perfect communion with God, humanity needed a new way to respond and give service to God. While the sacrificial system was not yet established, in Genesis 22, Abraham is called by God to sacrifice his son Isaac as an offering to the Lord. The word worship appears in Genesis 22 prior to Abraham building the altar on which the sacrifice was to be made. It says, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. The Hebrew word for worship in this verse means to bow down. It, it indicates that worship is not passive. It is active. Interestingly enough, here, once again, the call to worship is one that is initiated by God. In the garden, humanity did not choose to dwell with God. Likewise, in the case of Abraham, he did not initiate the offering of Isaac as a sacrifice. But his willingness to offer Isaac is an act of obedience to the task that was initiated by God. His obedient response to God's divine initiative is thus an act of reverential worship to God. Now, in this instance, God not only initiates, but he also intervenes and he provides for Abraham. In verse 12, it says, Do not lay a hand on the boy. 
he said, Do not do anything to him. I know you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. God provides, God initiates. Now, it's been established through a brief examination of the garden of Abraham that God is active in initiating our worship of him. His involvement in establishing worship becomes even more apparent in the book of Exodus through the giving of the Ten Commandments as well as the establishment of the tabernacle as the place where the people would come to meet with God. Exodus 25 through 31 gives great detail to the structure and components of the tabernacle along with the set of laws established for worship Uh, within it a fun piece of uh, uh, bible trivia for you it's during the building of the tabernacle that we have the very first circumstance of somebody being filled with the spirit of god the the two people that we're told are filled with god's spirit they're named bezalel and oholiab one is an artist and one is a craftsman The physical structure and comprehension of the rules regarding the structure of the tabernacle at their most basic level remain critical to understanding worship in the context of today. The tabernacle consisted of two pertinent areas, the holy place and the holy of holies. Within the holy place was the outer court of the tabernacle, and in that place, uh, God gave direction for an, an altar of acacia wood to be built. And the presence of the altar served as a reminder to the people of Israel that sacrifice was required in order to commune with God. The sacrificial system, which began to take its form in Genesis, is now seen as a necessary means of worship. Regulations for sacrifices worship have now been further established and ordained by God. In Exodus 20, before the instruction on the tabernacle, God sets parameters on the appropriate use of an altar. It says, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and a sacrifice on it, your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Not only does God set the guideline for acceptable God-honoring sacrifice, he regards that as a result of that sacrifice, that he will come and bless, further adding to the reality that God's presence is vital in our worship. While this only provides a brief brief glance at the makeup of the tabernacle, it establishes once more that it is God who is facilitating our worship. He's providing his people a means to approach him and to follow him through the giving of the law and the establishment of the tabernacle where people could gather together and meet with God. The giving of the law and the regulation of the tabernacle provided the Israelites with a set of guidelines or steps that made possible the pursuit of holiness. This pursuit involved first to refrain from uncleanliness or impurity, second to seek justice and observe God's sanctioned rules and feasts, and third that if a person were to falter in either of the first or second regard, holiness could be only reclaimed through God-ordained sacrifice. And so the approach to holiness must come through the stipulations designed and regulated by God. Well, along with the tabernacle and the institution of uh, the sacrificial system came the ordained high priesthood, which is first established in Exodus 28, where God sets apart the line of Aaron from the rest of the people. 
therein establishing the ordained priesthood as being a Levite from the line of Aaron. The significance of the priesthood as, uh, as, uh, in regards to worship lies greatly in the fact that the priest is the ordained mediator between God and man. The book of Leviticus goes into great detail the role of the high priest. The high priest was the sole person who was granted permission to enter into the Holy of Holies. And he was only permitted to do so once a year in order to atone for the sins of the people. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, would perform a sacrifice for the sins of he and his family, and in addition, a sacrifice for the sins of all the people. The details for the sacrificial rules for atonement are much more in-depth, but for the sake of keeping the focus on worship, it's more pertinent to consider the fact that it is the priest alone who is able to approach God. Once more, um, uh, 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 once more, and only permitted uh, to enter on the Day of Atonement. So with the establishment of the Day of Atonement, of the Levitical priesthood, the people do not have direct access to God. The high priest is the only person given that opportunity to meet with God. Therefore, in regards to sacrificial atonement for sin, one major element of sacrificial worship must be mediated by the Levitical high priest. The sacrificial system and the priesthood and the tabernacle provided the conceptual beginning of a center of worship and a person set apart by God to lead the people in the pursuit of holiness. The true center of worship, of Old Testament worship, is established with the beginning of the temple in Jerusalem during King Solomon's rule over Israel. 1 Kings 5 describes the beginning of the building of the house of worship, which would also include a holy place and a most holy place. And then in 1 Kings chapter 8, the glory of the Lord fills the temple. Thus, the structure of Israelite worship would remain as God had initially ordained. The people would use the temple as their house of worship because that was where God dwelled. So throughout the Old Testament, worship is initiated and facilitated by God. Worship occurred because God ordained it and met his people through it. The concept of worship and how God facilitates our worship takes on familiar uh, forms, um, but fulfilled forms with the arrival of Jesus, God incarnate in the New Testament. Well, most of what will be examined from the New Testament scripture will be drawn from the book of Hebrews. It's first necessary to look at the example of Jesus' life as we approach the application of worship for today through the life of the one who facilitates our worship presently. The life of Jesus is the perfect uh, expression of worship. While this might not be a difficult concept for us to grasp, it's far too easy for us to take for granted the sheer certainty that Jesus, God incarnate, lived a fully human life on earth. Jesus' ministry, we're, we're told, began by going out into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days. During that time, he was tempted by Satan. But Jesus successfully rebukes evil. And giving devotion to the Father, he uses this scripture from Deuteronomy 6.13, where he says, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Jesus' refusal to succumb to evil and his proclamation of scripture shows perfect obedience to God. Obedience which is reflective of the Israelites' pursuit of holiness. By being perfectly obedient to the Father and his command to serve him only, Jesus demonstrates for us perfect worship. 
Not only is worship at the core of this account, it also serves as the very core of Jesus' entire life. All of Jesus' life was an expression of his worship to God his Father as he served him in thought, word, and deed, and ultimately as he set the captives free from Satan's power through his sacrificial death. And so the life of Christ is the perfect example of a life of worship, a life of active obedience to God. In John chapter 4, you heard JT preach on this earlier in the year, Jesus has a dialogue with a Samaritan woman who's concerned about the location of proper worship. But Jesus turns the question around, saying that the question that needs to be addressed is how to worship God in an acceptable manner. John gives this account of the story in his gospel. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where man ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus brings about the words in which, we, in which worship is frequently defined today. Worship is acceptable when done so in spirit and in truth. To acknowledge Jesus as the truth also means that we need to receive the spirit who is available to those who believe in him making Jesus the means in which God-honoring worship exists in the new covenant. To worship in spirit and in truth is the very essence of human life and the way in which we come to truly know God. And so if Jesus is now the means in which we approach God in our worship, how does that relate to the God-established regulations of the temple, of the priesthood and sacrifice as their relation to the worship of the people in the new covenant? Well, the temple, priesthood, and sacrificial system are fulfilled through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The book of Hebrews gives account uh, to Christian worship that is now possible through God sending his son to the earth as the new temple, the ultimate atoning sacrifice for sin, the high priest and mediator between God and man. Hebrews 9, 11 through 12 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. These two verses acknowledge that a sacrifice was made for the atonement of sin. The important distinction lies in the fact that Christ did not offer a sacrifice of an animal, but instead, he offers up himself, his own life, so that all may receive eternal redemption. Along with Jesus being the atoning sacrifice, he becomes the mediator between God and man through his death on the cross. In chapter 27 of the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is crucified, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place physically tears apart, opening the holiest place for all who declare Christ as Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ fulfills the regulations of worship that were originally ordained by God in the Old Covenant. Sacrifice is no longer needed to atone for our sin. 
Jesus' death on the cross brings an end to the sacrificial system. A high priest is no longer needed to mediate between God and man. The veil being torn has provided man the ability to draw near to God through Christ Jesus, allowing us to look forward to the end of the ages when Christ returns and the new heaven and earth are formed. The new covenant, while fulfilling the old covenant, came about from the same ordination, from the same God. We are now able to approach and draw near to God through Jesus because God the Father sent his Son. And so worship of the Father is now facilitated by the Spirit through the Son. And once more, God provides the means in which we are able to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so acceptable worship is something that God makes possible for us through Christ. It does not depend on our own initiative, our own creativity, our own skill or worthiness. There's no acceptable form of worship outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13 gives the foundation of acceptable worship in the days of the new covenant. In verses 15 and 16, it says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips and give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Acceptable worship is therefore exemplified through reverence and awe. Doing good and sharing to all is not just limited to our corporate worship. In its widest sense, the sacrifice of praise will be rendered by those who confess Jesus outside of the walls of the church building, in various forms of public testimony or evangelism or service or witness. And so worship cannot be simply limited to our gatherings with fellow followers of Christ. Our fellowship with others needs to flow into our everyday lives. Our fellowship must encourage a life that honors and glorifies God. Well, the Bible ends with the book of Revelation, which provides the vision of a day where there's a world living in ceaseless worship. Revelation 4 and 5 envision a city in which God once again dwells with his followers. There's a new heaven and a new earth. Sin, sorrow, and pain are no more. Creation is restored. God has provided a means for his followers to worship in the Old and New Covenants, and there will come a time where he will once again dwell among humanity in a new city provided by him. In the beginning, there was worship, and in the end of days, worship will never cease. And while this is true, it's and easy to state, the implications that come as a result of this truth are far more complicated than the simplicity that this claim may indicate. It's been established that God throughout history sets the standard for worship. Worship is of God and to God. But the questions that then need answered include, what does this mean for the church today? How does what is understood about worship as it unfolds in the Bible apply to our weekly gatherings of corporate worship? In other words, why does any of this matter? Why do we need to worship? Well, worship might not be about us, but worship is for us. Who is us? Christ followers? Or anyone who happens to be here on a Sunday morning? Yes, it's both. Worship is for us. In the latter part of the 20th century, many churches began to adopt a philosophy that was known as seeker-sensitive or seeker-friendly and, in some extreme cases, seeker-driven. 
These titles basically meant that a church would strive to be as modern or relevant and attractive as possible to its community in order to reach non-Christians. These churches were very externally focused. They were good at bringing new people into the church, but often they offered a very surface-level understanding of the Christian faith. So while the church would grow in numbers, there lacked an emphasis on discipleship, on spiritual growth. On the other end of the spectrum, in response to the seeker-driven movement, some churches became internally focused. Worship was about discipleship and individual growth, not evangelism. A false dichotomy had been created. Churches needed to think through whether they defined their church's purpose as evangelism or discipleship. But it's not a matter of either or. It's both and. As I said earlier, this series has been inspired by the New Testament church. We've been looking at the markers of a healthy, vibrant church, and we've been looking at Acts 2, 42 through 47. I'm going to share those words with you again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This passage describes a community of people that was growing in their faith. They were growing in relationships with one another. They participated in communion together, and they grew in number. Our time of gathered worship is for both the Christ follower and for those who have not yet been ready to make that commitment. In her book, Reaching Out Without Dumbing Down, Marva Dawn writes that her greatest concern for the church has to do with worship because its character-forming potential is so subtle and barely noticed and yet worship creates a great impact on the hearts and minds and lives of a congregation's members. Indeed, how we worship reveals and forms our identity as persons and communities. Worship informs us who God is and who we are in relation to him. Well, my dad was a pastor. I grew up going to church every week. And as I got older and I started to think about my own faith and what I believe, I realized that so much of my early formation came from the songs that I grew up singing in church. And that realization is a big part of why I do what I do. I have personally experienced how the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, the creeds we recite, the sermons we preach, all of these things shape and form our understanding of God and the world around us. If you've ever heard me talk about how I approach the planning of our time of gathered worship together, then you've heard me talk about the idea that in our gathered worship, we are retelling God's story of redemption. We're reminding ourselves that we were created in love to do good, that we are learning to see our imperfections and our failures and our sin and seeing a God who loves us and forgives us through the sacrifice of Christ. We're not only invited to remember these things, but also then given an opportunity to live our lives as an act of worship, longing to treat others with the same love and compassion that Jesus showed that we might make our community look a little bit more like the kingdom of God. 
living with the expectant hope that one day Jesus will return and God will fulfill his promise to restore all of creation and make right what we have made wrong. And so our worship services are designed to communicate the truth of Scripture, to inspire with the implications of those truths, and then equip followers of Jesus to live faithfully in the world as witnesses to those truths. Because while the gospel includes the good news of God's grace for those who would turn to him, the gospel is not just for non-believers. Even those who have been Christians for many years need to be reminded of the gospel. Worship leader Bob Coughlin states in his book, Worship Matters, that we must preach the gospel to our own hearts every day. This isn't about repeating the portions of scripture that lead to conversion. It's about engaging in the power of that good news, that God has provided the grace to save, to sanctify, and to equip his people for this day, every day, and forever. We need this gospel, yes, to enter into Christ's kingdom, but we also need it to walk through the trials that we experience with each day. You see, worship is so much more than the songs that we sing. It's more than a 30-minute sermon. It's more than the one hour we spend together each week doing church. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul says, I urge you, my siblings, my sisters and brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And so you'll see these themes, creation, brokenness, confession, forgiveness, redemption, restoration, worked into the context of our weekly worship to remind us, encourage us, and challenge us to live our lives as an act of worship. Well, as you've heard, starting next Sunday, we're going to be moving to one worship service at 9.30 a.m., followed by Sunday morning communities. We're inviting you to come to worship for one hour and then to build relationships and grow deeper in our faith in the second hour. Now, all of us on staff, we've been tasked to reimagine the areas in which we provide leadership. And so the biggest question leading into this experiment in the area of worship is what does family-friendly worship look like? Now, before I share a couple ideas of things that you might be able to expect in the weeks to come, I want to first speak to the value of having children in the worship service. It gives opportunity for children and students to observe their parents worshiping. It gives them the opportunity to hear scripture and pray with the church community, to observe and participate in communion, and it tells kids that real church is for them. We know that more children in worship might look and sound different, and that's okay. If you're a parent worried about your kids being a bit too loud, don't worry, mine will be louder. But it's absolutely vital for the church to be warm and welcoming, for families to be able to worship together, because in all honesty, if you can't hear any crying, the church is dying. So what can you expect in the weeks to come? Here's a few ideas. First of all, keep in mind we're talking about family-friendly, not family-focused. Our community spans many generations and stages in life. Our worship services will continue to be absolutely relevant for you no matter what age and stage you fall in. For the music on Sundays, you can expect to hear some songs included into our repertoire that will be familiar to City Kids students. 
The Vacation Bible School curriculums include great music that's often already popular worship songs and new arrangements to familiar hymns. I've curated a Spotify playlist of some great songs for families, and we'll make sure that gets sent out in a newsletter in the near future. Many of these songs were written directly from Scripture, and we're going to incorporate them into services from time to time. One other note on music. At our Lessons and Carol service back in December, there were a number of families with young kids who stood in the back of the worship center during the music and danced. It was such an encouraging thing to see from the platform, and I hope you'll feel welcome to do that. Uh, do the same thing on Sunday mornings to come. You'll see more generational diversity on the platform. There will be times when we ask children and students to participate in reading scripture or joining the worship team for a song, and we're going to make sure that they are equipped and set up for success. We've been printing weekly sermon notes for adults and moving forward. I'm planning to adapt a version of those notes to give kids an opportunity to interact and respond to the sermon each week. These are just a few examples as we experiment. We may find some things work better than others, and I'm certainly going to be open to any ideas that parents might have of ways to engage and include your children in worship. Well, again, there's a lot more that could be said. But I want to close by simply reminding you we need worship because we need to be reminded regularly that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not a one-time conversion need. It's what gives us hope, when we see and experiment and experience the brokenness of this world it's what empowers and equips us to continue in the mission of jesus bringing more of his kingdom to our community let's pray almighty god we give you thanks for the way in which you have initiated relationship with us and that you have provided the means and the ability for us to come before you, to hear from your word, and to be encouraged by the hope of your good news for us. And so, Lord, we pray that as we gather weekly as a church community, that you would grow us in our understanding of the depths of your love for your people. Lord, that we might be reminded of your good news weekly and how uh, that empowers us and equips us to go out and bring that news into our communities. May our community look more like the kingdom of God. It's in his name we pray. Amen.